Everybody, welcome back to the Institute. I'm so glad to see you here tonight, and I'm really excited to be back with you. I uh, really appreciate Blake uh, teaching last week on creation and providence. I picked all the hardest topics and decided that that's when I was going to be out of town. So, uh, but seriously, Blake, thank you so much for that. Uh, of course he did a great job. Of course he did a great job. So I'm going to... I do that too sometimes, Blake. If you appeal to mystery, they won't know you're a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so we're going to talk tonight about humanity and sin. But before we do and before I pray, I want to share with you three different announcements. And that's like a record number of announcements at the beginning, but they're all good ones. So first, uh, Jeremy informs me that we now have copies downstairs of all the books that were recommended last semester, as well as the Valley of Vision prayer book from a couple of weeks ago. So those are available, and we're just going to keep buying books as we talk about them. There's a bunch of recommendations this week. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is uh, we, we normally try to end right at 7.30. I'm going to level with you. We're probably going to go to 7.35 or 7.37 tonight. This is such an important topic, and I don't see how we're going to finish on time, especially when I have announcements. So if you've got to go, you've got to go, but I'll just, I'm just giving you a heads up that we, this might be a 67-minute sort of thing tonight. And I'll talk about why in a minute. And then number three, we're going to make a minor change to the schedule for a couple of reasons. So if you've grabbed one of the schedules over there, you'll know that originally it was a couple of more weeks before we were going to do open discussion, but we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do open discussion next Wednesday night. So we're not going to do the person of Christ. We're going to do open discussion next Wednesday night, which is great for me because Wednesday is going to be the only week I'm in town next week. So uh, it means I don't have to prepare something new and can come in and do open discussion. But, uh, but the real reason that we're changing it is because the next week on February 28th, uh, Josh Powell is not going to be here, and he has asked for me to do the Institute in there for everybody. Just as like a one-night, people get a taste of it. And we're going to talk about the person of Christ. So things like the virgin birth, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man, some of the very best stuff that we could talk about in front of the whole church. And so, uh, so as we were talking through it, that was an easy change to make. So, uh, so it's just a change for three weeks by moving that open discussion to next week and then moving person of Christ and work of Christ up a week and then we'll, we'll pick back up. So we'll remind you next week, but in two weeks... Uh, there won't be a pastor's Bible study. We're going to do this for everybody uh, downstairs. So I'm excited about that. So those are the announcements. I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about humanity and sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, and uh, we are especially reminded of your grace as we talk about so many heavy topics tonight, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to be good students of the Scriptures and good appliers of what the Scriptures teach. And we pray that this will be time well spent for the kingdom work that you're doing uh, in, through, and among us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So humanity and sin. You'll remember that the Equip Institute 
exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Uh, last week, Blake talked about the doctrines of creation and providence, and tonight we're going to focus on humanity and sin. Now, the big idea, and this is why I think we're just going to have to take a little bit more time. So whenever we talk about the doctrine of humanity, uh, the language that theologians use is theological anthropology. Anthropology, humanity, theology, the study of God. Uh, so theological anthropology is the doctrine of humanity, and I would argue it is the defining theological issue of our era. So let me tell you what I mean by that. If we take a 30,000-foot view of church history, what we see is at different times in the history of the church, different doctrines kind of bubble up to the surface and they become the thing that's being debated. So in the earliest centuries, they were debating two questions. Uh, how can God be three in one? And how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? And it's not that we don't debate those today. It's just when we talk about those questions, we sound a lot like our brothers and sisters in Christ who were debating that in the early church because that was the big debate of that era. Or you think about the Reformation where the defining questions were things like, uh, what does it mean when we say that Scripture is fully authoritative? And uh, what does it mean to be saved by grace? And how do we think about works in light of that? And that's what led to the Reformation. Those were the big debates of that era. Or you think about uh, 19th century debates uh, after Darwinism comes on the scene about origins. Or you think about mid-20th century debates about inerrancy as people were wrestling with Scripture. I don't think there's much question that since right before the turn of the 21st century, going back to the 1980s and 90s, but on overdrive the last 20 years, the defining issue for Christian theology is what does it mean to be human? Because just about everything about human nature is debated in our culture. And just about every dicey ethical issue that divides families and divides neighbors and co-workers and sometimes tragically even divides churches comes down to these questions about what it means to be human and the implications of that. So we just have a lot of things to talk about tonight, and we are barely going to scratch the surface. And you're probably going to have lots of questions. And even in conversations with, with Jeremy and Josh and, and Leah and others, uh, I mean, I can see the need perhaps in the future if the Holy Spirit leads us to even spend uh, six weeks talking about some of these issues and really stretching it out as part of the Institute because this is the stuff that folks are wrestling with. Even in our church, this is the stuff that folks are wrestling with. Even in uh, my classes this semester, every single student I'm teaching is a professing Christian, and most of them are very serious about their faith. And these are the things that they're wrestling with. So we're going to spend time talking about it tonight. According to the Scriptures, God Himself created the first human beings as a special act that marked the culmination of all His creative work. That was referenced last week. Humans alone were created in the image of God and given responsibility to serve as God's vice regents over His other creatures, ruling on behalf of God. We'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. These first humans and all their descendants 
were also given a specific nature that included two major things, both of which are debated today. Uh, They were embodied, we'll talk about what that means, and they were gendered. We'll talk about that as well. Though the pinnacle of God's creation, the sin of the first humans is our first great tragedy in Scripture, and it not only negatively affected them, but sin also infected all of their naturally biological descendants. Apart from God's intervention, all humans are without spiritual hope because of the corrupting and ultimately condemning effects of sin. Furthermore, even when we step outside of humanity, God's good creation is no longer in its original state of perfection, but it's now a distorted version of the original. Our sin has not only uh, wrecked us in many different ways, it's wrecked everything in ways that sometimes we can't even fully wrap our minds around. So big ideas, let's dive into the scriptures. And again, we're just, we only have time to be representative, so I'm trying to focus on uh, the most important passages or when there's 17 verses that speak to something, two or three representative verses. By far the most important passage for understanding God's creation of humanity is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. So I'm just going to read what that says uh, from the English Standard Version. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And, excuse me, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them as food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made culminating with humans. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now we could spend all night long just on this passage. So I'm going to do my very best to kind of briefly summarize what I think the big takeaways are here. So this passage gives us a number of details about God's creation of humans. These themes found in Genesis 1, 26 through 31 are echoed throughout the rest of Scripture, and I give you several references in the handout that you can go to if you want to study more. But here I think are the five big takeaways from this very famous passage. Number one, God created humans in the same way He created all other things through the means of His spoken words. So there's not a different story about where humans came from. Number two, God created humans in His own image and this is not true of any other creatures. So we're different than other creatures. We are creatures, but we're different from other creatures. 
Number three, humans are gendered beings who perpetuate the human race through sexual intercourse. Every one of those words are hotly debated in our culture. But Genesis is pretty clear that we are created male and female. That's part of what it means for us to be humans. Number four, God commanded the first humans to exercise dominion over all the other creatures. And sometimes that's called the cultural commission or the creational commission. But, uh, but we are commanded to rule on God's behalf, to represent Him. And finally, number five, humanity represents the culmination of God's creation. It was only after He created the first man and woman that God pronounced everything He had made to be very good. It was already good, but now His image bearers are there, and it's real good. And so God is excited about His human creatures. Now, there's a lot more we could say, but those are kind of our five big takeaways from that main passage. But there are other passages that we want to think about as well. Of all God's creatures, humans alone are embodied. And what we mean by that is that we have an immaterial soul or spirit in addition to our material bodies. These terms represent something like the general life principle. I have that in quotes because lots of theologians use that sort of language. But it's not just one person, so I didn't footnote it. You find it kind of commonly. But uh, yeah, it's the general life principle of each person. Though the soul in Scripture often refers to who we are as individuals. We're individual souls. While the spirit often refers to who we are spiritually as we relate to God. And we're going to tease out a big debate about that in a few minutes. But here's some key passages. Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Or Romans 8-16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, lowercase s, that we are children of God. Or Hebrews 4-12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we reference several other verses as well that refer to spirit or soul. God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. If Adam was obedient to all of God's commands including the covenant not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would live forever in covenantal relationship with God. Eternal life was symbolized by the tree of life. Now, the tree of life also appears in Revelation, but we're going to focus here on Genesis 2, 9 and 15 through 17. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, you may be asking, why are you calling it a covenant? Because it doesn't say there's a covenant there. 
I want you to hold that for just a minute. We're going to come to it. But I would argue there's a lot of covenant-like language that's in there, even though it doesn't say, I'm making a covenant with you, Adam. But we're going to see where the covenant's referred to in just a minute. So just be patient. The first human sin occurred when a diabolical serpent, a manifestation of Satan, tempted Eve into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve, in turn, persuaded Adam to also eat from the forbidden tree. So here we have the famous passage from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If I can chase a rabbit for 10 seconds. This is Satan. We know it's Satan. There's hints in the text it's Satan. The New Testament makes clear it's Satan. I get nervous about anybody who tries to say it's not Satan. And so, to me, like, like one, of the, one of the earliest signs of slippage for somebody theologically that has nothing to do with ethical stuff is when somebody gets squirrely about Satan. Scripture makes clear Satan is a being. He's a creature, a person with a personality. And we see him present in some mysterious way in this serpent that tempts Adam and Eve. So why did I call it a covenant? Because Hosea calls it a covenant in Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So I think that the combination of Hosea referring to what Adam did as transgressing a covenant and the idea that there are these obligations and responsibilities that we see in Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2 tells us that uh, there's some sort of covenantal relationship, even though it's not spelled out as clearly as later biblical covenants. The consequences of this original sin included covenantal or relational separation from God, relational separation from each other, a fallen physical world, and spiritual death. Now this is discussed at great length in Genesis 3, 8 through 24. I'm just going to read some of those verses for the sake of time. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cast out. Relational covenantal separation. There's been... Uh, prophesied here or promised here, interrelational conflict between man and woman and their descendants. They have, to they have to work hard to get the fruit of the ground now instead of the ground easily yielding up the food that they need. And the New Testament just continues and gives... Um, a more what we might now call theological reflection on all this, just to give a couple of very well-known examples. Uh, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Or Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation in some mysterious way caught up in the sin of Adam and Eve. Because Adam was a covenantal representative of the whole human race, every human has inherited the guilt and consequences of his sin. And as soon as we are capable, we become actual sinners. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, we are born drifting into sin by nature or by corrupted nature. And as soon as we are able, we actually start sinning. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but I, th I don't think it's the case that we're neutral until we start sinning. I think that uh, that sin is inevitable for all of the biological descendants of Adam and Eve. So Romans 5, 12, 18, and 19 gives us kind of the clearest picture, but then also in the Old Testament. But we'll start with Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Or Psalm 14, 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have begun, become, become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Or Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Romans 3, 23, maybe the most straightforward, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because humans are captive to sin, we can't do anything in and of ourselves that is perfectly good. Every part of our lives is tainted by sin to varying degrees. We cannot even restore our covenantal relationship with God without His divine aid. So Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Or Romans 7:18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Or Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The soul or the spirit of a person continues to exist after physical death. Though those who are damned are considered spiritually dead or destroyed despite their ongoing existence in hell. At the end of time, the bodies and souls of all the dead will be reunited and we will once again be embodied beings. Psalm 33, Psalm chapter 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Or Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. John 5, 28 through 30. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20 verses 5 through 7. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And I referenced numerous other verses that are talking about this. So I know that that's a lot of Scripture talking about where we came from and what went wrong And we're going to talk about all of the thorny debates that Christians have had about this. But any questions about what the text is saying or what, how I'm interpreting the text before we really get into the kind of two views, three views sort of stuff. Man, y'all are a quiet bunch tonight. Oh, I didn't see it. I'm ready. Okay. Okay, I see what you're saying. Where, where in each of the other yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it, that's not how he did it, but just technically... It yeah, no, 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 that's a helpful clarification. Um, what I'm trying to say is that man wasn't something else before man became man. Does that make sense? So I can probably clarify a little bit more that uh, what I'm trying to say there is that we weren't something else and then we became humans. But 
humans were created as humans by God's power from the get-go. Yeah, that's a... We didn't evolve. That, right, right, right. We didn't used to be tadpoles or whatever. I mean, I've met some people that act like tadpoles, but we didn't used to be tadpoles. That's helpful. We can make that correction next time. No, no, it's a helpful clarification. Helpful clarification. So what has the church said? A whole bunch. Nearly every aspect of the doctrine of humanity is debated, both within the church by people who take Scripture seriously and are just trying to figure out the best way to say it, and by the wider culture that doesn't give a fig about the Scriptures. A significant current debate is whether Adam and Eve were historical figures. And if so, whether all humans are connected to them biologically or just representationally, like they represented figuratively all of humanity. And that debate's closely tied to one's views on human evolution. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time there because I don't think we have a lot of people in our church that wrestle with that. But just as you know, there are people out there, including people that are Christians, who wrestle with the idea that Adam and Eve were real people, uh, they would prefer to say instead that they're uh, kind of store, they're literary figures in the story of Scripture that are kind of representative of what happens to all of us. I don't think we would have a lot of people in our church that would hold to that view. Maybe Blake, but not a lot of other people. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Blake doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that. Christians have always debated what it means that humans are created in God's image. And there have been three different views articulated throughout church history. And this is interesting, so I want to spend a moment on this. So three different views, and I give you the terms. The substantive view argues that being in God's image means that we uh, possess some of His characteristics that He doesn't share with other creatures. Things like reason, emotion, spirituality, some of those communicable attributes we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and there's no doubt we share those things and other creatures don't. But there's problems with all these views. Uh, none of them tell the whole story. The problem here is what do we do whenever we have humans who are cognitively incapable of reasoning? Or what do we do whenever we have humans who are incapable of expressing emotions? My mother-in-law did not know who any of us were for the last 10 years of her life. Did she stop being the image of God? So we do share attributes with God. But I'm not sure that tells the whole story. Then there's the relational view. This says that we bear God's image because like God, we are inherently relational. God exists in eternal community as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And humans also exist in community, relating to each other and God, and thus dimly reflecting the perfect relations between the persons of the Trinity. Well, this is true. The Trinity is a perfect, holy, happy community from all of eternity, and, and we are related uh, to each other, but we're not all equally related to each other. And some people don't have any fruitful relationships for various reasons. And 
Again, it raises questions. Are some people more in the image of God than others based upon the nature of their relationships? And there's the functional view. The functional view argues that humans bear God's image because they represent God at his, as His vice-regents and exercise dominion over the earth. Now, the strongest thing going for this view is that it's literally what it says in Genesis. He created them in His image and commissioned them to exercise dominion over the earth. But we stink at this. And we've stunk at this since the fall. So again, there's, there's just questions that kind of come up with all of them, which is why it's so debated. I'll tell you how I put it together in a few minutes, but those are the three views that are out there. But uh, most people would say it's some sort of combination. Almost everybody admits if you lean too far in one direction, you're missing some things or you're raising questions. Now, human embodiment has also been debated throughout church history as well. For example, Christians have often debated the exact relationship between the spirit and the soul. So again, we have two different views, and man, these are dorky technical terms, but I'm going to share them because if I didn't, somebody would ask about them. Uh, so there are some who are trichotomists. They say we're made up of three parts, tri. The spirit is the part of us that lives forever, and the soul is basically equivalent to the heart uh, in the scriptures, the seed of our emotions and intellect and priorities, and the third part's our bodies. So the distinctions between the soul and the spirit, and those are two completely different things. Then there are those who hold to the dichotomist or two-part view, and they say that the soul and the spirit are virtually synonyms in the Bible. They're just used differently in different passages. So let's not make too fine of a distinction between the soul and the spirit. They're both just kind of referring to the invisible, immaterial parts of us versus the physical parts of us. Human gender and sexuality has been hotly contested since the 1960s, which, if you're middle-aged like me, seems like a long time ago, but if we're church historians, we know that's the day before yesterday. This is a very recent debate. So in terms of gender roles, again, we have a couple of different positions. Complementarians argue that God created men and women to fulfill different but complementary roles in the home and the church, while egalitarians defend full equality of the sexes in both nature and in roles. Complementarianism is the traditional view though egalitarianism has become increasingly popular among Western Christians in particular, people who look like us. The ordination of women to pastoral ministry, which is an egalitarian position, was a significant point of contention in the Southern Baptist Convention controversy in the 80s and 90s. Again, everybody agrees uh, human nature is the same, whether you're male or female. It's about the roles and responsibilities, not the humanness of men versus women. As Western societies have increasingly viewed homosexuality and transgenderism as appropriate rather than aberrant, different Christians have responded in different ways. Theologically conservative Christians are what, for lack of a better phrase, I'm just calling sexual traditionalists, while progressive Christians are sexual revisionists. 
the ordination of homosexuals has proven even more controversial than female ordination. And just in our neighborhood and every neighborhood has split our friends in the United Methodist Church just in the last two years. R almost right down the middle over this question of homosexual ordination and being fully welcoming and affirming of homosexuality. See why I'm saying we could spend weeks talking about all this stuff and probably should? We're just doing the overview tonight. When it comes to sin, while all Christians believe that sin is universal to humanity and deserves God's eternal wrath, some details concerning the doctrine of sin have been debated throughout church history. Now for the sake of time, I'm just going to take kind of the biggest debate. Uh, the biggest debate is about the transmission of sin from Adam to other people. So historically, there's been three major views. Uh, the paradigm view, the biological view, and the representative view. So here's the paradigm view. The paradigm view claims that the guilt of Adam's sin is not transferred to other people. Instead, we should think of Adam as the paradigm for what happens to all people. Adam's story becomes all of our stories. Every human is born good, or at least neutral, but as soon as we're offered the choice, we inevitably choose to sin just like the first humans did. So sin is inevitable. We're all going to sin. But Adam's sin only affects Adam. And Eve's sin only affects Eve. There's no such thing as original sin. Only actual sin matters. Now this view officially has been rejected as a heresy by the church since the 300s to say that we are born neutral and that we have no connection to Adam and Eve's sin except their story becomes our story. Having said that, just because it's been declared a heresy doesn't mean there's not a whole lot of people that believe it. It's taught by a lot of liberal Protestants who don't believe in a literal Adam but I think there's also just a lot of people in the church that don't know the Scriptures very well who say, of course, we're all basically decent, but we mess up. And we probably mess up as soon as we're old enough to start messing up. But they've not really thought a lot about how that's connected to Adam and Eve. The second view is the biological view. The biological view claims that the guilt of Adam's sin is transferred to other people biologically through sexual intercourse. The idea here is that our sin is passed on in the same way our DNA is passed on and everything else. You got your eye color and your skin color and your hair color and the shape of your faith and your sin from your parents. And it all comes the same way. Every naturally born human being is guilty of Adam's original sin because it's passed biologically. And as soon as we are intellectually capable of doing so, we choose to become actual sinners. Now this view is most famously associated with St. Augustine and it is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. But there are lots of Protestants who believe it too. So it's the Catholic view, but not everybody who holds it is Catholic. Does that make sense? This is, by the way, if you ever have unbelieving friends or maybe even believing friends who are wrestling with the idea of sex and Christianity, 
you know, and, and you hear people make this accusation like Christians think that sex is wrong or they have a negative view of sex. That's actually a distortion of what Augustine was teaching and what the Catholic Church believes. It's not that sex is sinful. It's that when sex results in the conception of a new human, sin is passed down. But you can see why people would be confused about that and go from that to the idea that sex itself is somehow sinful. So that's the biological view. The representative view claims the guilt of Adam's sin is transferred to other people covenantally because Adam was the representative head of the human race. As with the biological view, every naturally born human being is guilty of Adam's original sin, and as soon as we are intellectually capable of doing so, we willfully choose to become actual sinners. Now this view is associated with John Calvin and is affirmed by lots of Protestants, including lots of Protestants who disagree with John Calvin about lots of things. So these are kind of the three big buckets. You find variations in each of the buckets. But the buckets are their stories, our story, but we're not connected to them. We're connected to them and we get sin just like we get everything else. Or we're connected to them, but they represent us in some sort of uh, covenantal, mysterious way that we can't fully comprehend. Now, we'll discuss some other debates about sin when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, since they're related to things like how can we be sinners and believe, or how can we be sinners who are even forgiven sinners and pursue holiness. But we can't talk about all the debates, so we're just kind of focusing on the how sin got into us debate tonight. So I know that's a lot of different things that Christians and non-Christians have debated, and we're just scratching the surface, but any questions about those different debates? Yes, sir. On your, uh, the last section, the paradigm view, biological view, and representative view, how does, I, mean, I, I think I understand, but I'm not certain, how does um, what happens to an infant who dies yeah. fit into those groups? That's a fantastic question. So what do we do with infants who die when it comes to these three? So we've got three big buckets here. When it comes to the questions of infants, which is often also extended to people who are intellectually incapable of believing, so not just infants, but people who just cognitively are unable to believe, uh, there's five or six different views. And so some of them overlap with these, but, uh, but not always. And so, uh, sorry, I dribbled my water on myself and now it's bothering me. I was being clumsy and uh, drinking at the same time. Um, so maybe the best way to say it is there are some people... Well, almost everybody who holds to the paradigm view just say, of course all infants go to heaven because they're not sinners. So they're, they're there. The biological and the representation view is really where we have different versions within it. And uh, if I can oversimplify a little bit, uh, they tend to fall into three different camps and they can get the spin from the biology or the representation. So camp number one is... Uh, all of those infants are saved, but they're not saved because they're not sinners. 
They have a sin nature. We're all sinners, but they've not committed actual sin and just God in His mercy saves them. There might be some variation, but that's kind of one. And then the other one says none of them are saved because you have to believe to be saved and they've not believed and it's a hard truth to hear but God is God and He gets to write the rules and we have no reason to believe that any infants are saved. Or maybe only infants that were baptized are saved. But no infant's going to be saved just by being an infant. Not a lot of people who hold it, but it's there. And I've met people in real life, flesh and blood. And then the middle position, uh, which I don't think is the balanced middle, but it's the kind of middle position in between the two, is the one that says we can only say with certainty that some infants are saved. So there's kind of the Catholic version of that that says, well, if they're baptized, they're saved, but we have no reason to believe they're saved if they're not baptized. Or there's uh, among some Reformed folks, the some infants might be among God's elect, but we don't know if all infants are among God's elect, so we can only say elect infants. And there's like Presbyterian confessions that use that language. And some people just appeal to mystery there and say, I don't know. Now you're not asking me this question, but before someone else asks this question, I actually think there's lots of hints in Scripture that all infants are, are saved. I don't think the Bible clearly teaches it in a proof text slam dunk way. But I don't think there's anything in Scripture that teaches infants aren't saved. Does that make sense? So I just think the, the weight of Scripture is in this direction, and I don't see any reason pastorally to introduce too much mystery in that area. Having said that, I have many, many friends who want to be in the middle and say, I just I think this is definitely wrong, but I don't think there's enough hints over here, and I don't want to say too much, but I'm just I just think there's several different hints in scripture. And uh, maybe what I can even do is share an article that I think really helpfully explains this. And then there's a couple of different articles that are out there. Uh, Dr. Moeller and Dr. Aiken have a co-authored article. You're nodding your head. You already knew this was there. You're cheating. You're asking questions you already know the answer to. No, I don't but, know your answer. I know but, but, my, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, that article has very much shaped me. And then I actually wrote something. I actually don't think it's on the Internet anymore. Um, but I wrote something years ago that was meant to complement their article. It's another line of argument, which is from the idea of people from every tribe and tongue and nation being saved. There were tribes and tongues and nations that had passed off the scene before Jesus even came. There are tribes and tongues and nations that pass out of their own unique existence before anyone shares the gospel. The only explanation I have for that without Scripture contradicting itself is that some of them must be saved, or it's at least plausible that they're saved, because they're infants or people who are cognitively incapable of believing who are saved. It's conjecture, but I think there are hints in Scripture about that topic. Beloved wife, did, didn't you write a seminary paper on this? I, I thought you did. See what I just did? I just yes. outed her so that y'all will all go talk to her about this. But this is, but you know, this is one of those questions that uh, 
it's such a uh, it's such a hard pastoral question because you don't want to commit theological malpractice and say something that's not true because it's sentimental. But at the same time, you don't want to cause anybody to lack hope when there's no good biblical reason to lack hope. And just different Christians who take Scripture very seriously come to different conclusions about the best way to navigate this question. Rick, Jeff. Right. It's one of those and most important biblical hints. But now he is dead. Why should I continue to fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him when I die. Right. So David is going to go and he's going to be... I think that is the biggest hint in Scripture is uh, David mourning the loss of the infant. Other questions before we really get into how I try to put it together? Okay, so what in the world do we do with all this? What should we believe? Of all creatures, humans alone are created in the image of God. This image has been marred by the fall, but it hasn't been totally lost. So you might think of this. The image is fuzzy in some ways, but it's not not there. We're not less human because of sin. And that image is progressively restored as we come, become more and more like Christ through the process of sanctification. Regarding the question of what it means to reflect God's image, I personally think it seems best to combine the three different views and to understand them as different aspects of the Imago Dei. I'm not the only person who does that. But, and I don't think that's a cop-out. I, I really do think they're all three speaking to elements that are true of humans, that are not true of other creatures, but none of them tell the whole story. Does that make sense? So I'm just very comfortable saying that it's some sort of combination of those. We do share certain characteristics with God that other creatures don't. Like God, we are inherently relational beings, and, and specifically relating to other persons. And God has tasked us with exercising dominion over His creation. So in all these ways, we reflect God. When we love God and embrace each of these roles as an act of worship, we glorify the God who created us in His image. Human beings are embodied creatures, and we will exist after physical death. We are a combination of physical and immaterial components. Virtually all Christians agree on that basic understanding of human nature, but there's a lot of debate about the finer points. For me personally, the dichotomist view seems more convincing than the trichotomous view. But guys, this is a really speculative matter that doesn't affect the Christian life that much. So I'm, I'm not going to say I don't care about the answer, but do y'all remember that old insurance commercial, car insurance, where they, you call him up and he says, I care, but I don't care, care. Do you remember that? It was about 20 years ago. Like when it comes to the whole dichotomous versus trichotomous, I mean, I care, but I don't care, care as to... Uh, I'm not going to be bothered if uh, the soul and spirit are radically different things, even though I think they're probably two different ways to talk about the same thing. And then you throw the heart in, and uh, that's another term we see in Scripture that refers to kind of who the invisible part of us is. I, I just think that we, we're starting to split hairs a little bit 
when we debate it too much. Our gender is a part of our human nature and enables our fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. One's gender is biological, reflects God's design for that person, and thus cannot be changed. You can mutilate a body, but you cannot change gender. Though many people struggle with same-sex attraction and gender confusion, homosexuality and transgenderism are incompatible with a biblical view of sexuality. Regarding gender roles, men and women are equal in nature and dignity, but they fulfill different complementary roles in the home and in local churches. According to Scripture, husbands are the spiritual head of the household and the role of elder, pastor, bishop is reserved for men. Scripture teaches that Adam and Eve introduced human sin into the world and that all humans inherit Adam's original guilt because of his representative status. All humans, with the exception of Jesus Christ, are sinners by status and by choice because of the sin of the first humans. We are all guilty of original sin, which early in life leads to actual sin. Human sin has warped all of creation and leads to distortion, disease, despair, and death, and probably other bad things that also begin with a D. Sin is a terminal condition with both temporal and eternal consequences that cannot be reversed by our own intervention. As best as I can, that's how I put that stuff together from Scripture. Any questions or concerns or thoughts or pontifications before we start applying it? So what do we do with this? How should we live? There's so many things we could say here. but I've tried to limit it to just a few. We should defend the dignity of human life because humanity alone is created in God's image. Positively, this means cultivating an atmosphere in our church and homes where all human life is valued because all humans bear God's image. Negatively, This means opposing any action or attitude that destroys or degrades human life. And that includes so many things. Abortion, euthanasia, homicide, rape, systemic poverty, various forms of oppression or abuse, all of these to varying degrees uh, undignify humanity and violate the sanctity of human life. Ideally, the sanctity of human life should permeate not only our churches and families, but also our culture. And Christians are right to advocate for the sanctity of human life in the public square. Number two, we should fulfill the cultural commission to exercise dominion faithfully as God's vice regents. We should seek to glorify Him in every sphere of our lives. We should reflect His image in our families, our churches, our occupations, our responsibilities, our hobbies, our priorities, our attitudes, our public deeds, and the list goes on. Second, we should treat His creation in a way that brings glory to Him. We should treat non-human creatures, which is every other thing He created that's alive, 
with kindness. We have been put here in part to protect them. We should live in a way that preserves and protects rather than exploits and abuses natural resources. Now, I want to be clear about something. I don't believe in earth worship, okay? I'm not part of the Green Party. But I would submit we don't talk enough about caring about creation. And I'm not talking about left-wing policies that say trees are more important than people or that chipmunks are more important than people. I'm just telling you, Genesis is pretty clear that we were put here to care for the earth and sometimes we don't do a good job of caring for the earth. And part of being Christians means we say, hey, we ought to do better at caring for the earth and caring for all those other creatures that Adam named and that God's entrusted to us. We should live in light of eternity. All human beings will exist forever. Physical death is inevitable for all people except those who are currently alive at the time of the second coming. But death is not the end. Even those who experience spiritual death or destruction continue to exist, though their existence is horrible. We'll talk more about that when we talk about end times. Because we'll all exist forever, it's important that we live with an eternal perspective. Decisions we make in this life have eternal consequences, and that is especially true of decisions related to following Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. A couple more here. We should affirm, pass on, and contend for biblical patterns of gender and sexuality. These issues are so contested in our culture. Our culture is so confused about what it means to be male and female. So confused. And there are good people who are suffering in their confusion. They are not all radical activists that hate us. There are people we love and some who are trying to love the Lord who are confused about these issues because culture is discipling them to be confused. So we need to be both courageous and winsome. And yes, I know that there are social media influencers who say we shouldn't be winsome, but I don't see how you can avoid being winsome in how you are courageous if you care about the fruit of the Spirit. You can be courageous and not be a jerk about it because these are people created in God's image. So while we should speak out against unbiblical expressions of gender and sexuality, we should also speak out against professedly Christian individuals and groups that are really hateful or abusive in their views and don't love sinners, even if they say they do. A sign of spiritual maturity is our ability to be self-reflective and self-critical when the Holy Spirit convicts us. We've got to be courageous. Courageous. But when somebody really is just being hateful to people who are transgendered, struggling with that, or people who are homosexual, we need to say, you're not calling out sin, you're being hateful. And guys, I know that's hard to navigate because the culture wants us to be one or the other. They want us to be one or the other. But we're not called to be on this team or this team. We're called to be on His team. And that means that we've got to be very 
firm, and courageous about sin. And we have to really love those image bearers who are wrestling with those sins and not just treat them like they're pawns in somebody else's culture war. And I believe there's a culture war. We can talk a lot about that. We'll have a whole session on that next year. Finally, we should mortify our sin and pursue holiness. Though Christians are saved from sin's penalty, we are not yet freed from sin's presence. All of us struggle with what the Puritans used to call besetting sins, those sins that we constantly struggle with that we find ourselves praying about over and over again, maybe the sins that haunt you when you close your eyes at night. You know, we, we all have certain things that we're prone to struggle with and other things that you might individually not struggle with that much. But we must, be, we must be diligent to fight all our sin. And we should especially seek to put to death those sins that we struggle with the most. And there's lots of ways to do that, like the spiritual disciplines. But I'm not going to say a lot about that now because we're going to have a whole weekend about spiritual disciplines in a couple of months. So let me recommend some resources and then we'll stick around a little while and chit-chat if you want to. And I recommended lots of books because this is, again, this is, this is where all the debate is. Uh, that first book, John Hammett and Katie McCoy's book on the doctrine of humanity is a brand spanking new seminary-level textbook on this topic. Uh, I've mentioned the series Theology for the People of God here before, but not in a while. That's the series that I'm one of the editors for. So I've read every word of that book, and it's very good, and I would recommend it to you. Greg Allison's book, Embodied, is a great uh, kind of semi-scholarly treatment of human nature, and he really plays off this idea that we're holistic beings and that that really matters. And, uh, and, and I think that anybody in here could read that and benefit from it. I cannot recommend enough these next three books. Katie McCoy's To Be a Woman, The Confusion Over Female Identity and How Christians Can Respond is particularly about women and gender dysphoria and what's happening in our culture. And uh, Dr. McCoy is a conservative female systematic theologian who is called to write in these areas and is just doing a wonderful job serving the church in this way. Also, Andrew Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate, What the Bible Actually Says About Gender Identity, is the best go-to book that's just FAQs on what the culture is saying about all this gender confusion and how Christians ought to think about it. And he's writing for parents and grandparents in particular. Y'all know my rule. Everything Kevin DeYoung writes is worth reading. So his book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality, is just a great book for the church about how to address those issues. And then uh, my personal favorite book on the doctrine of sin, that's a funny thing to say. My favorite book about sin is... uh, is Cornelius, great name, Cornelius Plantiga, not the way it's supposed to be. And uh, it's just, he shows uh, like eight or nine different metaphors for sin that we see in the Bible. You know, you've heard these before, you know, miss the mark, breaking commands, falling away. He looks at all those and just teases out, you know, what do those mean and how they're different facets in a negative way of that one idea of sin. And finally, I've done something I've not done before, and I have added a little announcement down there. So one of the things I do at North Greenville is I'm responsible for our annual Worldview Week. 
and uh, we take three days every spring and we tackle a big issue. And this year, March 4th through 6th, our big issue is thinking Christianly about human nature. We're going to have two speakers, Katie McCoy, who I just mentioned, and then Jason Thacker, who is an ethicist who teaches at Boyce College. And uh, Dr. McCoy is going to come and she's going to particularly talk about human nature and gender confusion and things like that. Dr. Thacker is going to come. Well, he's not doctor yet. Professor Thacker is going to come. And, uh, and he's going to talk about things like artificial intelligence and transhumanism and how technology is affecting how we think about what it means to be human. And uh, for both of those events, there's a regular chapel for the students that you could come to if you wanted to. Might not like the music. But uh, in the, I'm just saying, I know y'all, you might not like the music. But uh, the evenings, that Monday evening and Tuesday evening lecture, Monday evening is Dr. McCoy, Tuesday evening is uh, Professor Thacker. Uh, the whole community is invited, and I think you would really enjoy what they have to say uh, about these topics. And uh, they're both very, very good friends, and we're thrilled that they're going to be here this year. So I know that that's a lot of stuff. And I know that we need six weeks to tease it all out, but we've done it in 66 minutes and six seconds. Oh, three sixes. Ronnie got that. So what questions, what questions do you have or what do you want to talk about? We'll, we'll go about five minutes over. Will those um, sessions on March the um, third and fourth be, or fourth and fifth be taped? They will be taped. That's a great question. We're going to tape all, we're going to tape both the, chapel messages that are more 30,000 foot and those evening that are a little bit more seminar style. And so if someone down the road would like to have that shown in a session here at the church, could... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And those evening, again, those morning sessions, those are going to be, in the case of Jason Thacker, a 30-minute sermon, and in the case of uh, Katie, a 30-minute teaching session where... <laughs> Leah's laughing... 30-minute teaching session that's going to be, again, for like all the students and faculty. But in the evenings, it's going to be more like 45-minute lecture, 30 minutes of Q&A that I'm going to moderate. And so that's going to be more seminar style in the evenings. Because I can see how young parents Absolutely. would probably benefit from this, uh, but may, could not go at night. Yeah. No, I think so. I think so. Um, interestingly, so Jason Thacker speaking on Tuesday before... Josh asked if we would do the Institute. Uh, he actually asked if Jason was staying over an extra day and could we try to steal him to come in and do Wednesday night, and he has to get back to where he's going. So unfortunately, we're not going to have him talking about artificial intelligence at the church, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll bring him in the future. Any other questions? Yes, Blake, are you going to defend yourself? I'm going to make you explain what the Billy Graham rule is before I answer that. So how does our view of human dignity apply to something like the Billy Graham rule? So by Billy Graham rule, do you mean uh, men and women trying to avoid being with people of the opposite sex who is not an immediate member of their family? Yes. And how that relates to human dignity? I don't know the answer to that question. I've not thought about that as it's human dignity as much as I've thought about it as just responsible ethical behavior for Christians. Um, so let, what, how are you, you're asking that question for a reason. So how are you tying that to human dignity? 
they felt as if, you know, there were too many assumptions that were made about those given situations where there was perceived sin, where yeah. there was no intention of sin. Gotcha. And it just kind of made interactions with people of the opposite gender just like really awkward and uncomfortable. That's helpful. So I have... Right, right. No, I understand that. I just wasn't sure where you were going with that. So yeah, so I have uh, a common critique of that uh, would be something like this. It assumes that all men are thinking about how to have an affair with a woman or all women are potential seductresses or something like that. I totally understand that. So uh, for two and a half years at North Greenville, I was our chief academic officer and my number two my second in command, was a female who is a dear friend and a member of our church. And so what that means is we had lots of meetings that were just the two of us. Lots of meetings that were just the two of us. Lots of emails, just the two of us, and text messages, just the two of us. So here's what this means. We didn't shut the door unless we absolutely had to and there's windows on the doors and a secretary sitting right there. We didn't fly together or fly back from conferences. There was always other people with us whenever we did that. Uh, we did not have meals or coffee together in the same way that I might with male colleagues and she might with female colleagues. Uh, it means that my wife can look at my, she has access to my email and my text messages all the time and can pull those things up and look at them. And so it was just a matter of saying, how do I do the job I've been tasked to do and she's been tasked to do, uh, but we're acting with integrity as brothers and sisters in Christ so that we're above reproach and nobody ever says, so what's going on? So I think there's ways to still honor the spirit of the Billy Graham rule without saying that means you have to be skittish about working closely with people of the opposite sex who are not part of your immediate family. Having said that, I think there is tremendous wisdom in the principles with the Billy Graham rule. Uh, tremendous wisdom. And I think that Billy Graham especially was very wise to uh, lay those rules out because he knew that the whole world was watching and people were looking for ways to say, I think something kind of fishy is going on there. And uh, it was very wise, and I think the track record of many other evangelists and pastors who have made uh, significant moral mistakes with people of the opposite sex and sometimes of the same sex uh, shows the wisdom of having some clear boundaries in place. Uh, but I, I don't think that it's, uh, it's only undermining the dignity of the person if you make the wrong assumptions, like every person is a temptation or every person's lecherous or whatever. I think you're actually honoring the dignity of the person to say, how do I protect your reputation? While also still doing what we have to do in this job or whatever the case might be. Yeah. In the area of biblical Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, also. Yeah. You know, these are questions that 
when people start questioning the reality they, of they do. Adam and Eve really uh, were they real people and you know what culture uh, were they and how did the other cultures down the line evolve and really what happened after the flood how did the yeah. population yeah. some stuff like that these are significant questions that people who are really searching and seeking for truth sometimes they come up with some good questions they do have good questions so so I'm going to give my answer, which might not be satisfying. Okay. So I'm just admitting that. Um, biblical anthropology books that I know of don't direct those, don't answer those questions in as direct a way. Now, some of them that are talking about the historical Adam talk about the population questions and where, how do you get different ethnicities and, and those sorts of things. So any any of the good books uh, on that topic, and I'll I'll think about some, but uh, I actually think the best works are excuse me, the apologetic type works that you get from people like a Josh McDowell or a Lee Strobel or whoever who answer those questions. But this is why I said you might not like my answer. Um, I don't think the answers are persuasive to, be, to unbelievers who are not inclined to believe the authority of Scripture. Does that make sense? Because everything is, well, here's how... You're either saying Scripture doesn't tell us and we're just having to trust Scripture... Where did those other siblings come from? Right. Or we're saying, well, actually, when I think about when we think about the Tower of Babel and what happens with languages and dispersion, maybe that helps lead to ethnicities. For different reasons, those aren't satisfying to somebody whose real problem isn't their intellectual hang-up with where did Cain get his wife, but the real problem is he's a rebel against the Lord of all creation, even if he doesn't realize it. Does that make sense? So I think that those apologetic works are helpful for suggesting sometimes slam dunk, sometimes just plausible answers to those questions. But I've not personally met many unbelievers who, uh, when I'm sitting on an airplane and they're asking an apologetic question and I give an answer, they're like, oh, that has answered the longings of my heart. Thank you so much for walking through that with me. Most of the time they then move on to how come I can't have sex with whoever I want to have sex with or whatever the question might be. So I think there's value in trying to answer those questions. I just... Uh, yeah, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. All right, we've been here for a long time, five minutes even later than the 10 minutes I said we would, so I'm going to close us in prayer, but I'm happy to stick around for another couple of minutes and chat if you want to. Lord, we thank you so much that you created us. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates you had to create us. Lord, you chose to create us, and we are so thankful for that. And we pray that you would help us to be people who affirm and defend and pass on biblical anthropology for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will see you next.